Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on July 31st, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today I'm lucky enough to be joined by NK News bossman Chad O'Carroll. Good evening. Writer come editor extraordinaire Oliver Hotham. Good afternoon. And NK News junior correspondent Colin Zwirko. Hi, thanks. Before we start our uh, wrap-up of the latest news the last couple of weeks, I'd like to remind you all that you can get a $50 discount off your nknews.org subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. And a personal request to all of our listeners out there, if you were in Pyongyang in July 1989 for the 13th World Students and Youth Festival, please write in. I'm looking for people for a future podcast episode just about that festival. So, how can they write in? Ah, thank you. Good question. They can write to podcast at nknews.org. Also, the place to write to for any guest suggestions, feedback, and comments and questions. All right, so today we're going to talk about a wrap-up of the latest news the last couple of weeks. On Friday, we saw the first transfer of Korean war remains in over a decade. Now, I'm used to seeing over the years, I'm used to seeing remains being transferred over the line at Panmunjom or uh, to be accurate, the joint security area near Panmunjom. Thanks, Steve Tharp, if you're listening. Uh, why were they flown direct to Osan this time, not handed over the line? Do we know anything about that? Whenever I looked into the first few instances of unilateral transfers from the North Koreans of remains, yes, those were all done at Panmunjom. Uh, this was in the early 90s. But there were over 100 more repatriated unilaterally over the next few years and then through joint team efforts over the next decade. And so I'm not sure, actually, I wasn't able to find uh, many instances of air transfers, but I'm sure that they happened. Was it maybe, was it something to do with just the sheer number of it? When there have been previous transfers, I mean, have there been any across the DMZ of like 55 at once? Because that seems like quite a lot. That's a good question. But they didn't they send, didn't the Americans send over 100 coffins uh, or caskets to the demilitarized zone it's in preparation point, yeah. for this? So, so it seemed like they were ready for, ready for a mass uh, handover. Well, those are apparently given over by trucks. In my conversations with U.S. military members uh, related to this, they've all really emphasized the ceremonial aspect of it. Where, was the, uh, where did the plane take off from in North Korea? So they took off from the Kalma Airport uh, at Wonsan on the country's east coast, mm. which is right on the same peninsula as the new Wonsan Kalma uh, tourist zone that they're constructing. Right. Now, that's uh, a little bit unusual, uh, at least to me. Uh, does that imply that the remains were found in that area there on the east coast? Well, so we started hearing this number of 55 remains would be handed over. We started hearing this number in mid-July from unnamed sources in other media. So that means that this number was prepared well in advance before the U.S. handed over the wooden transfer boxes. So these were prepared in advance by the North Koreans, uh, but we don't know where that where they were stored. So yes, it's possible there was a storage facility over near Wonsan, or there could be some other reason for it taking place at Wonsan. Now, you might already have mentioned this uh if so, I apologize for asking again. Was this a U.S. Air Force plane that brought the remains over? Yes, it was a U.S. Air Force cargo jet. Okay, so that had been sent to uh, Wonsan. What? How? Uh, how much? In, how much time in advance? So that that plane landed at Wonsan early in the morning, apparently at around uh, six a.m. Ah, so it was just a quick uh, pickup and then come back to uh, to Wonsan, was it? 
This this is I'm I'm showing my colleagues a photo of the departure board at Pyongyang from last Friday. I don't know why these flights are on there, but you can see there's a aircraft flight number starting repate. I think is a repatriation. It shows a flight uh, going to Wonsan at 5.30 in the morning from Pyongyang. So maybe those planes came into Pyongyang first. Uh, that was flight repatriation 7. And then it did a unknown destination at 10, at 1 minute past 10. There you go. Again. Yeah. I mean, that, uh, would, that would be the US Air Force plane because they left, it left at 10. But what makes no sense? Hold on. Uh, next to unknown, it says here in Korean, Orsan. It's just the English part <laughs> that's unknown. So someone hasn't known how to romanize Orsan in English, it's I possible. guess. But it definitely says in Korean that it's going to Orsan, right. which is perhaps the first time ever uh, that Orsan has been up on a, uh, on a, a Korean airport uh, destination board. Yeah, it's just weird that that is showing what we thought was a flight from Wonsan, unless they're just showing off flights from Wonsan at the Pyongyang departure board. But yeah, that, that, that be, is a bit odd, isn't it? Yeah, very strange. That departure board, for anyone who's listening, is a font of interesting news leads if you're ever in Pyongyang and you see random destinations on there, do send a photo of it to us so we can look into it. Now, Colin, there was talk on Thursday that there wouldn't be a ceremony. Why did USFK change its mind? Well, I'm not sure why yet. It's all speculation. It might have something to do with the uh, wanting to have a win, a ceremonial aspect to something, especially with last Friday being the 65th anniversary of the uh, armistice agreement, effectively ending the Korean War. So, Okay, um, to get back to the 55 remains, I don't mean to sound either gory or disrespectful, but uh, does that imply, so it's remains of 55 human beings or is it 55 pieces of, of bone? Uh, what, what does it mean exactly? I think the job is now they have to sort through them, right? I think the North Koreans have kind of loosely classified them yeah. um, and it's now up to the DPAA, is that correct? Yeah, the, the Defense Prisoner of War Missing in Action Accounting Agency. Tell us a bit about that process there, Colin. What do we know about it and how long can it take? The DPAA experts in Korea right now, they did some preliminary investigations over the weekend and tomorrow they will fly back to Hawaii and they have to receive information, DNA information. Uh, So they're calling out to families of service members who have uh, loved ones missing in action from the Korean War, Mm. trying to gather as much as they can. They estimate that there are 5,300 unidentified or unaccounted for around that that they suspect is in North Korean territory. Uh, I'm not sure if that takes into account the over 300 which have been identified in the past uh, couple of decades. And then there's the controversy that's been in the past about North Korea returning things that were allegedly animal remains, um, all that nasty business as well. I I know that they uh, were supposed to have done it in the case of the kidnapped Japanese schoolgirl Megumi. Are they also alleged to have done that in the case of of US servicemen's remains? As far as I know, I think there was or it was um, they returned remains of... Um, Koreans, as in North Koreans as well. I think there was um, not 100% sure on that. Yeah, and, well, and that might come out of uh, uh, lack of resource on North Korea's part to know what yeah. the remains are, rather than our actual malice on their part. Well, it's, imagine, right? unfortunately, it's interpreted as malice when they do it, of course, because it's assumed, like, well, what an insult to have claimed that this is POW remains. Well, and it's a trust-building exercise at a time when US-North Korea talks aren't going fantastically well. 
Trump personally thanked Kim Jong-un. So it's a sign that um, while negotiations on other fronts aren't going fantastically, and I'm sure we'll get into that later, yes. it's a nice little thing for the North Koreans and the US to work together on, I suppose. Absolutely. The trust issue will definitely come back to later. But uh, first off, we're going to look at uh, sanctions and how that's going along the China-North Korea border. Chad, you've been looking into that. Tell us a bit more about what's been going on lately. Are the san- sanctions still on? From a black and white paper perspective, the prohibitions on exports of coal, seafood, all those things that were introduced uh, in December 2017 are still very much in effect. That being said, there have been signs that uh, sanctions implementation is uh, not consistent. And sometimes there have been quite creative ways around sanctions that certainly undermine the idea of there being a, a, an ongoing maximum pressure policy. So just a few examples. China is not known to need power, but we have, in fact, it's got a surplus, one would imagine, but it has been uh, reported to be importing electricity from North Korea. We don't know how much it's been paying, but um, that could be one indirect way to give uh, assistance to the North. Another interesting area. Sorry, how does that actually work? I, I, I confess that I'm both fascinated and completely ignorant. How does one country import power from another country? Does it mean that the two grids are integrated somehow? I probably need some kind of pylon that goes, but that's a good point. I don't know how they do it, but one would imagine there's a pylon of some sort that connects. The other interesting area has been tourism since, I think, a couple months now, since May. Tourism to North Korea from China has really, really spiked. And Mm. those in the industry who we speak to have said that these days you're looking at around 1,000 people minimum in Pyongyang alone from mainland China. Uh, You have very high numbers also in Sinuiju, the border city. There have been accounts of tourist buses getting to the DMZ and there being already 26 buses parked up full of Chinese tourists and people have had to walk Mm -hmm. part of the way because the car park is not big enough. Um, So it's almost like China was able to switch on tourism um, after that second or third summit between Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping. And you can see it in everything from flight movements, the fact that Air China reinstated a three-flight-a-week service. Mm. Uh, that's six extra flights, doubling the air choreo capacity. And Chinese tourist, tourism is still down in South Korea, meanwhile, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're still talking about relatively low numbers. Uh, I mean, China last public data was in 2012, and there were something like 235,000 tourists reported to have gone to North Korea that year. 2011, I think. So still very low compared to that. Other few indicators that we've been watching and seeing have been related to uh, cargo traffic going between Dandong and uh, Sinuiju. Some of the sources we speak to up there have been saying that they've noticed much more traffic than before it's really diminished to almost like a dribble mm. around winter early part of this year and then there are there's some interesting in infrastructure issues there's a bridge that has been under construction up between two men and namyang and then far northeast of the country um while construction was kind of slowed down especially last year We've seen it pick up, and in June this year, there were photos that we got showing clear activity, uh, five or six construction workers who look Chinese, Chinese banners, construction banners behind them. So it looked like China's picked up a small state-backed project. Um, It's not a huge bridge, very, very much like a small causeway. But 
that made us think, well, if they're doing that, maybe they're going to finally look at finishing that bridge to nowhere between Dandong and Sinuiju. And since Colin started looking into the satellite imagery, we've, we've seen press reports pick up of claims that China may be allocating $86 million to uh, the North Korean side to create a customs house and infrastructure to connect that with. But about that bridge to nowhere, I, it was my understanding, or people had told me, that uh, its lack of completion wasn't due to lack of budget, but rather uh, North, Korea's, uh, North Korea's concern about what such a, uh, the impact of having such a wide bridge. It was a lack of will on the part of North Korea. Well, we, I remember hearing it was something to do with Jung Song Tech years ago, that he'd, he'd been a key part of the project, and after he was executed in uh, twenty. 12 December or was it 2013 2013 that all fell apart and actually I think the timeline loosely fits with that but who knows clearly the North Koreans weren't interested in in finishing that off I mean just adding a road and even a a train train line shouldn't be that complicated right no which to my mind suggested that it might have been lack of will more than anything Mm -hmm. else but uh Colin, I understand that sanctions haven't hampered all the building projects that are taking place in Pyongyang right now. What can you tell us about that? Well, we know that there are a lot of building projects, a lot of large construction projects going on in the past couple of years. Going around the city, looking at satellite imagery, I noticed that a common period over the summer between April and October, whenever Google Earth gave us really high quality satellite imagery, between that period, a lot of projects saw a lot of progress. There is everything from near the near the uh, Unification Monument in the southwest of the city. There's this whole entire area right next to uh, Ryamyang Street, which is seeing more progress. Uh, yeah, all over the city, there's towers, tall buildings. As you say, we don't know what uh, what effect sanctions could be expected to have on building projects, but it is uh, it would impact getting access to building materials like steel girders and uh, reinforcement bars and things like that, wouldn't it? And, and petrol. I mean, sorry, you know, um, gasoline. gasoline-related as, products, yeah. yeah. Because um, you need a lot of those for construction to move things, I suppose. <laughs> there was a big spike in April last year. The prices rose two or three times more, I think. And they've come down two or three times in the last eight months or so, but they're still about 55% above last April. So gas is still scarce but it's not as bad as it was around christmas time when you it felt like maximum pressure was kind of getting into the peak swing of things uh, it should be said as well on on sanctions north korea has been very good at getting around the limits which are i think 500,000 tons a year of refined petroleum products uh, state department figures that were given to the un panel of experts said that they estimated on a, on the upper end that North Korea may have got as many as 1.3 million tons of refined products. Oh, wait, what was the supposed limit again? 500,000. So that's more than double the, the amount. It's nearly triple. Nearly yeah. triple the amount. And that's to. been done through 89 ship-to-ship transfers that they supposedly have evidence to show North Korea did. Which is a really dangerous thing to do. Ship to ship transfers of gasoline. I mean, they is that because just, of flammable? Well, they just take these hoses and connect them, and then they go across the. I mean, it's really if someone's smoking, you know, as sailors all want to do. And Oliver. <laughs> yes. sorry, um, sorry if I've just revealed something. Um, then um, 
it's all uh, it all goes in flames. I mean, someone said this. I can't remember who was pointing out like, how actually hazardous it is for you know all the fumes, all the mm. all the things going on when you do a ship to transport. I mean, that's probably not the UN's main concern about the the livelihoods of the sailors, but it's it's my concern. Now, what about uh, ship-to-ship transfers or other transfers, illegal anti-sanction transfers of coal that we've been hearing about? Yeah, South Korea has come under a lot of scrutiny um, because of coal that was acquired through indirectly, it seems, from North Korea and then sold to some kind of private companies here. But we're hearing some rumor that those private companies, one of them may be associated with government in some way, maybe Mm. a contractor or something like that that we're you know we're still trying to look into that but it, the you know the south korean government for whatever reason seems to be dragging its feet somewhat in identifying the companies that purchased this and that is you know they're getting some flack from newspapers like the choss and Ilbo about that who have been you know condemning the fact that this has happened and questioning why it's not been you know resolved yet and partly that's got to do with the fact that uh coal and the sale of coal is closely tied to the military economy in North Korea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that and the fact it's the one of the biggest export earners for North Korea. And so there's always been speculation that that revenue has helped the nuclear program, missile program, etc. But, you know, what they the North Koreans do, just for listeners that don't understand, like this process is pretty smart, frankly. It's like loading up a ship with coal, going to another port, Sort of, if I if I recall, they kind of hover around outside to make it look like a transaction is yeah. taking place. And so, when it arrived in South Korea, it was labelled as Russian coal, right? Yeah. So, um, the problem is the local authorities didn't have any process to do due diligence on the ships that arrived. It just said it was from Russia, so they went, okay, it's from Russia, and took it. Yeah, and you you know, it's kind of understandable to an extent. At what level should a port be doing? due diligence of vessels that are in some time, some cases thousands of miles away. How far back in a route history should it be inspecting to try and see if there are signs? But Especially given that last week the South Koreans said that there were possibly multiple yeah. times that this has happened and they're actually not sure how many times this could have happened last year at the height of sanctions yeah. and maximum pressure. Uh, uh, listeners might remember one of the earlier episodes of the NK News podcast with uh, David Thompson of uh, C4AS a few months ago and also Leo Byrne, one of our writers at uh, NK News or NK Pro who writes about this exact topic. So there's lots of information out there. It's interesting that even though this has been known or at least the, the process has been known for some time that it should be happening again now. It's, uh, it's a bit cheeky. Now, Oliver, today we had uh, some meetings between general-level officers of the two Koreas. What can we expect to have happened at those meetings or at that meeting? They met this morning. This is the second time they've had talks like this this year. They had some earlier ones um, in June. Is it the same officers, as far as we know, on both sides? I think so. It's, uh, yeah, the two guy, the two delegate heads are the same two. And actually, the um, North Korean uh, delegate head was also led military talks in 2004 so he's he's seasoned um, so he's been around the block a couple of times you could say he's a veteran Uh, you could say you could say that it was quite interesting these talks don't tend to have the kind of lovey-dovey feel that a lot of the inter-Korean stuff we're seeing at the moment does have it's all very practical it's all about reducing the risk of there being some kind of skirmish on the border and um, these South Korean plans to turn the DMZ into like a peace zone 
to kind of unmilitarize the um, northern limit line, make sure they can't have clashes around there as well. There was quite a lot of speculation before these talks today that they would not go well because last time the first ones didn't go fantastically. They came up with agreements to restore communication channels, but at the end of the talks, the North Korean chief delegate actually said, let's not do this again. So infuriated was he by the South Koreans' apparent lack of preparation. Um, They kind of went in, I think, a little bit, um, yeah, underprepared, and the North Koreans were quite annoyed about that. We'll see. It seems like it's concluded early, which is good. Now, speaking of strife between the two Koreas, the uh, Republic of Korea says that it will investigate the case of the 12 plus 1 North Korean restaurant workers who came from China to uh, South Korea. Since the last time we chatted about it, the UN has weighed in, uh, and things are looking a bit stranger uh, the South Korean government may or may not have said that it won't issue passports to these women, which is a clear, uh, surely a clear breach of their human rights. Uh, what, what are we here to make of it all there? UN Dele- um, Chief Envoy on North Korean Human Rights, Thomas Ahea Quintana, came to Seoul and um, he did a press conference. And the first question, I think a lot of people were expecting him to talk about how human rights hasn't been top of the agenda in US DPLK talks, but top of the agenda, the first question, what's your assessment of this restaurant worker case? Because he mentioned it last time he was here. And he said, well, I spoke to some of the women and then kind of left it in the air. And then someone said, well, what did the women say? And they said, and he said, well, they want to go back. Is it? This is the first time that we've actually heard directly the voice of the women, isn't it? No, there was the JTBC report ah, included yes. some of the women um, saying that they wanted to go back. But for the UN special envoy on human rights to be saying it is quite a substantial thing. I mean, he said last year that he believed there were discrepancies in the case. I think this just lends further uh, credibility to that claim. Um, this And now this South Korean human rights watchdog is looking into it as well. Which is a semi-government agency. Semi-government agency. And it must still be said the South Korean government's position reiterated on Monday is that they all came here voluntarily and that there's no funny business going on. But the whole thing is a mess. It's been dealt with terribly from start to finish. And as a result, there's lots of sensitivity around the issue, rightly. um, But that even obstructs some people wishing to talk about it because... I find in my conversations with people about it, almost personal politics and thinking about North Korea seems Mm. to shape the way people see this. So some human rights advocates on the sort of right are very, very angry about it and will just suggest that the North Koreans are somehow remotely manipulating these people and making them, incentivizing them to want to go back and state that to certain interlocutors, which they would argue, has created this whole mess. Now, that may well be true. Um, On the flip side, there are the more left-leaning human rights folks who suggest that this is, you know, an all-on-NIS plot and that these ladies uh, never wanted to come here and that it's fundamentally against their human rights that they're stuck here. The truth is probably somewhere Mm -hmm. in between. The idea that 13 people would all defect simultaneously seems far-fetched when you consider that's 13 different networks of friends, family into North Korea from a pretty high-end level of family. I was having a chat with a a human rights observer on the weekend and they made an interesting point was that this could be resolved in a way that could placate a lot of different stakeholders. But if we just knew uh, factually whether or not these people have been given a passport, if they have 
then they could take it upon themselves to get back to North Korea if they really wanted to. If they haven't, then that suggests the South Korean government has concern for one reason or another about the potential for them to go back. Right, but there's also another, an alternative uh, way of looking at the passport issue. That is, if the government says publicly we're not going to issue them passports, that's also a way of signalling to North Korea that it cannot use their families to try to manipulate them into coming back, right? That it's actually sort of a way of, of... cutting the women some slack by saying they're not coming back not because they don't want to but because we're not giving them passports so sort of, you know the problem uh, is the stop trying to leverage yeah, them the problem is if they say i mean we they, we know for a fact that they haven't really been given passports the problem is that's a tacit admission that there's they fear that some of them might go back right right and the, the thing is people get it's interesting because human rights adv- advocates I noticed suddenly get very selective about human rights when it comes to this case. The right to movement suddenly becomes a very low priority for some human rights activists because of implications that it may have for other families and defects. I mean, the whole thing is a real mess, right? It's it's obvious there's no clear answer to it. And uh, all parties are going to have to do the best they can with a pretty lousy deck of cards, hand of cards. Uh, one solution could be this August 15th family reunion includes a reunion of these families with their, and they can look each other in the eye and make a call and, you know. And at the same time, the North Koreans shouldn't really be fussing so much about the potential for these families to be far from each other when it itself is preventing so many of its people seeing families in this country. So, you know, it's people on the left forget that because, you know, it's very easy to, just to, to hone in on this mm. this case and right. project one country as being bad. Um, but we, we know that both countries have a lot of issues in this area and a lot of work needs to be done. Uh, we're going to move on to the next topic there. Chad, what about activity in missile factories and uh, maybe even a, a satellite There's been a flurry of recent developments related to North Korea's nuclear program since the the June 12th Singapore declaration. The first, was it three, four weeks ago, uh, NBC were first to report on 12 sources that were sharing information about ongoing enrichment facilities Mm -hmm. at three locations in North Korea, including a place called Kangson, uh, which was revealed, I think, first in Washington Post. Basically, open source researchers have since then been able to, so they say, identify the location. Uh, it's actually just off the Youth Hero Highway from Pyongyang to Nampo. On the left, it's pretty close to that the main highway. And that, that's been identified as a, a functioning, ongoing area where uh, uranium is being enriched to weapons grade levels. So there's that. We had a second issue uh, a week or two ago. It was 38 North published satellite imagery, which showed that the Sohe launch facility was being partially uh, dissembled. That was an interesting one because even Trump jumped onto that, stating, you know, this is great open source evidence of Chairman Kim's commitment to living by the Singapore Declaration. Right, he was very happy. But what's confusing about that one is if they were trying to make this good faith gesture, why not publicise it? They do, I mean, 
My or do they just assume that the Americans are watching and will well, just... Well, you know, earned, earned media is better than... Uh, in the in the advertising industry, they always say earned media is better than true. your own. In other words, like having... Giving a website like 38 North the exclusive, it gives it more authenticity and uh, credible credibility. And they know exactly what time the satellites come over every day. Maybe they just let the news come out organically as a way to, to give it more credence and you know again i think it was yesterday uh, more intelligence reports being leaked out to the washington post about icbms being constructed in north korea right now there's no commitment on paper from the north koreans to stop mass production of icbms um it's not really in the spirit of complete denuclearization of the korean peninsula i mean there's not much you can do with an icbm if you're not going to put a nuclear warhead in it uh, finally, some lighter news. Inter-Korean soccer matches, film festivals showing North Korean films in South Korea. What's going on? So, Panmunjom Declaration, buried under all of this stuff, was all this stuff about civic groups and this idea that the way that peace on the peninsula will happen is through groups getting together, having fun little picnics and doing things like that. And so the two Koreas are trying to be trying to work on that type of stuff while all the other big picture stuff happens so we had news last week that a 65 member north korean group of labor union members mm. from north korea's general federation of trade unions of korea are going to be coming to seoul next month uh, for two football matches at seoul world cup stadium unfortunately it's not going to be world cup level um football because these are going to be Bur- burly trade union members um, as you can see from the pictures, they're a little bit less. Um, this isn't like the South Korean, like, not like the South Korean national teams we saw in the World Cup. I went to see a uh, an inter-Korean match, pretty much like this, at the World Cup Stadium. Gosh, it must have been 2011 or 12. Even under Im Young Bak, there must have been one of those. I remember going with uh, with Mike Spavor back then. Which team do you support? <laughs> because this is the question: If the two Koreas are playing football in Seoul, is it going to be all? There was there was one in 2013 as well, a wim- women's match. I remember two interns of ours reported on it at the time, oh. and there were lots of uh, lots of warm feeling about both Koreas and mm. cheering all the time. So I think it's a win-win for some people. And what about film festivals? Well, so there was. Um, the South Korean government gave approval earlier in the month to a film festival in Puchon, the Puchon International Fantastic Festival. They have it every year. Um, very famous. Um, yeah. The South Korean government said for the first time, you have permission to screen some North Korean films. And uh, those North Korean films included Story of Our Home, which is a famous kind of family drama. It's an old um, one, isn't it? It's an old one. And then there's the children's animation, Let's Keep the Traffic Ordered, mm. which quintessential North Korean title there. A message for everyone. And then, of course, the famous Pulgasari. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Kim Jong-il monster movie. Was and that with the abducted... Was that Shin Sang-ok? Did, I that think was, he directed that, that one, That was right? made yeah. by him. And, uh, That's Comrade, the, sort of the Korean equivalent of Godzilla. It is. It's actually quite good. The soundtrack is the soundtrack is Jean-Michel Jarre-esque. It's very... Wow. It's good. Oh, I do yeah. like a Jean-Michel Jarre. Yeah. So isn't playing that in South Korea kind of endorsing kidnapping in a way? Um, well, I think that's a very cynical take that's not in the spirit of the Panmunjom Declaration, Chad. Yeah, this was privately organized, wasn't it? It wasn't. It was privately organized, but the NIS had to give them special permission as well. There's this thing called the Special Materials oh, yes. under the um, National Security acts and other laws that formally censor North Korean propaganda and the NIS had to give them permission 
specifically to use these films. Now, you've not mentioned Comrade Kim Goes Flying. I have not, actually. I was about to. But that's not that's a North Korean film that was made in collaboration with uh, Corio Tours. Yes, and a, and a Belgian film director. And how do I know this? Because I met her and Nick Bonner in late 2012 with Chris Green and Andre Abrahamian down there at the Busan Film Festival. So this is definitely not the first time that that particular film has been shown at a film festival in South Korea. I mean, heavens, if they showed it in 2012 and they're showing it again in 2018, perhaps they're imagining that people forgot in the interim. Yeah, well... First time Paul Gasari, as far as I know. Ah, okay. And um, some journalists went there and asked the locals what they thought about these North Korean films. Mm. And the locals were kind of nonplussed, as South Koreans are wont to do. Um, <laughs> you know, sort of, I think it was more of a nice little spirit of the things. I'm sure I would have quite liked to go down and watch Paul Gasari there. Have we missed it already? We have missed it already. Aww. It took place on uh, Ju- July 15th. Over a thousand people gathered on the lawn of Butchan City Hall for South Korea's first ever public screening of a North Korean film. Possibly no, inaccurate in that line. Not right. This is not NK News reporting, though. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Blame, so the, blame Hollywood reporter. These, um, just to bring it back to the sanctions stuff, like, the, you know, it's very easy to find ways to identify sanctions hurdles for a lot of even the most mundane artistic exchange. Uh, there was there's an idea right now, or it will happen, about inter-Korean art. Painting Corporation and the uh, sanctions part of my mind uh, instantly just thought of the fact that the Mansuday mm. uh, studio is under UN sanctions and it's under multiple treasury sanctions. That one's all right. That's because um, B.H. Moon, is it? B.G. Moon? I think yeah, the artist and this um, Georgetown guy, he personally owns those paintings. Oh. So it's right. okay in that context. And I think he obtained them before the sanctions came in. I think he obtained them in like 2011. And you can actually read on NK News, we, uh, our very own Dag MG interviewed him. But they wanted, they, they wanted to bring North Korean artists to South Korea. Oh, yeah. But those artists, one would assume, would be part of the Mansuley studio. studio, which would theoretically, one would imagine, make them un, you know fall off out. They would be designated parts of that so these, these these sanctions are so far reaching is what i'm trying to underscore that even what can seem like quite jovial artistic cultural cooperation can theoretically feel mm. full under sanctions and the thing is i don't think they would i don't see any appetite for these kind of sanctions to be enforced you know we we're Still hearing about Glocom, for example, which was raised over a year year ago, 18 months ago now. It's still openly operating. It's been recommended by the UN panel of experts to be sanctioned. It's not been sanctioned. They are part of the Reconnaissance General Bureau of North Korea. They sell military equipment. Now, if they're not being sanctioned yeah. uh, or pursued seriously, as it seems to be, I would assume you could... Uh, get away with flying some North Korean artists over. Even well, I think the RGB boss came, ex-boss came to South Korea. So, and he well, went yeah. to New York City and had steak in a swanky New York. He, he had fine luxury whiskeys. He did, but the German foreign minister refused to give him a visa, so he couldn't visit uh, the German uh, Bundestag and speak to them, despite having been invited. I mean, just to give you one example, one more. The, uh, Air, when uh, Pompeo was in Pyongyang recently, there was a great photo of Pompeo doing a press availability thing on the tarmac at Sunan Airport. And uh, behind him in, was his uh, presidential Boeing 757. Mm. There was an Air Corio stairway going up to the plane. 
And uh, Treasury, of course, designated Corio as a sanctioned entity in 2016, December. Being a jerk, I emailed into the State Department to ask what kind of message they're sending as part of this global maximum pressure policy using Treasury-designated stairway for Pompeo to get onto the aircraft. Did they get an exemption from Treasury to do this? Uh, no reply. You cheeky. <laughs> Cheek. And on that note, that's where we're going to have to wrap it up for this particular episode. Thank you once again to Chad, Oliver, and Colin for joining us here in the studio. We will also give thanks to Arius Dare for doing all of our post-recording editing. He goes in and cleans up the messes that we make. And thanks to Colin for setting up the gear today while Christina is taking a much-deserved break. Uh, everyone, don't forget to check out nknews.org, the leading repository of information, research, and news about North Korea. It's a fantastic website. You should all be members. And you can save $50 off your annual subscription by using the word podcast at the checkout. Uh, please send comments, questions, and suggestions to podcast at nknews.org or check out the NK News podcast page that we have recently created on the Facebook. And if you were in Pyongyang in July 1989 at the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students, please drop us an email because I'd love to talk to you. Thanks and listen again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>